Thank you, Don. And Alicia. Good to be sharing God's word with you again. And as we uh, enter into a new year, uh, I'd like to challenge you all uh, this morning to, uh, to put God first in your life. To put the Lord Jesus Christ as the focus of everything that you do. There is no reason that he should come second in any area of our lives. He should be the first in everything. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll read verses 1 to 13 this morning. And we'll see what the Lord has for us. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Let's read. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your goodness to us. Thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy, which is new every morning. And we thank you that you've brought us to this place this morning, that we might fellowship and rejoice in you. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as we um, hear this word, that as your word, is, uh, as your word goes forth, that our hearts would be ready to receive it. Heavenly Father, only that we might grow thereby, that we might glorify you with our lives. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every soul here that there, if, if there is a need, that your spirit would even now be working on that need. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place this morning challenged to live for you, wholly for you, to put the world behind us, to put all of our cares and concerns and, and worries and to take the yoke of Jesus for it is light. So we just pray that he would be the focus of our attention now that his name would be lifted up, both in this place and within our hearts. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Most of you know that I, um, I'm a marriage celebrant. It's fun doing weddings. Love doing weddings because you get to meet the families and you get to meet the couple and, and you, know, you, you get to hear about their, you know, their aspirations, about, about what their lives are going to be in the future and how they love each other. And, and it's good to see... Um, two people devoting themselves to each other and solely to each other. And if you, I've done a number of weddings with different, with different customs and different backgrounds, but generally they, they sort of follow the same type of process. You know, there's, there's normally an engagement period, you know, where they, where they uh, you know, devote themselves to one another, they promise they're going to marry one another and they begin to make preparations for this big day. The families get involved and everyone's sort of, you know, everyone's excited as, as the, the day approaches and draws near. And then you have the, this big day, or after all this preparation and work that goes into it, where families are invited and there are vows that are made and, and then they go off on their honeymoon period and they spend some time together and, and then after that they, they settle down into a home and they, they try to settle down to a normal family life. But not every culture does it that way, does it? There are some cultures that do it very, very differently. Um, in Victoria, the, the marriage ceremony is almost, is almost guided 
and controlled by legal aspects. There are, there are certain ways that you have to, you, you have to get married, and there are certain things you have to do. And interestingly enough, um, the government controls religious ceremonies a whole lot less than civil ones. So you can get married at the, at the bridal registry, uh, sorry, bridal registry, at the, uh, the registry office, and that civil ceremony is strictly controlled by the government. It, you have to say certain things at certain times. But if you have, a, for example, a Christian wedding, there's a whole lot more flexibility that the government gives you, which is interesting in and of itself. But weddings have been part of man's culture right from the, to the very, the very beginning. But they've changed a lot as well. You'll notice this passage over here is about a wedding. How many of you relate to this type of wedding? Hands up, who, who've, who's ever been to this type of wedding before? Not all at once? No? Okay. Well, Jesus spoke much about weddings. There are many parables. There are many references that Jesus makes to weddings and, and, and bridegrooms and brides and, you know, and, and all those types of things. To him, uh, the wedding, the picture of a wedding symbolised a lot. And he used it very often because people in, in his day, as well as ours, relate to those sort of things. If I spoke to you about, you know, I used wedding as an example or an illustration, you'd know what I was talking about as soon as I started, as soon as I started talking. Because most of you have experienced weddings. You know what they're about. And Jesus was using this illustration to, to point out some very important truths. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding as well. Jesus understood that in his day, in his culture, weddings were a, a very important part of their culture and even the youngest to the oldest, the poorest to the richest understood the message that he was giving. So our challenge today is to understand what he was getting at with this, with this type of message because you see it's more difficult for us to appreciate what he was saying than it was for them. For them, they understood exactly what he was talking about. For us, we have to do a little bit more digging to understand what it was that this wedding symbolised and what the, what the different aspects were. So as we read this, this passage, as we look into it a little bit more, ask yourself, what parts of it do you understand? How much of it makes sense to you in terms of what he's, what he's speaking about? There is a simple challenge in this. There is a simple message that he's giving, but... What, what, how do all these things fit together to bring that message home? So what I'll be doing is starting off by explaining to you what a typical Jewish wedding in Jesus' day, how it was performed. So as we look into it, you'll begin to see more and more what a lot of the things that Jesus spoke about, what they meant. And they'll begin to make more and more sense to you. And this thing will make more and more sense to you, my prayer is. Dr. Reynolds Showers gives a detailed description of what a typical wedding was like in Israel in those days. And as you listen to this description, I'll read this out, take heed of the order of the wedding, how each part plays a symbolic uh, aspect to it, and how it relates to us as believers today. So you're going to hear some things that, that sound like what Jesus was speaking about in other places. Listen carefully. The first major step in a Jewish marriage is betrothal. Okay, so that's an engagement. Okay, where two the two people betrothed to each other, betrothed to each other. Betrothal involved the establishment of a marriage covenant. So the agreement was made at that point. By Jesus' time, it was usual for such a covenant to be established. As a result of the prospective bridegroom taking initiative. So it was the guy who went and found the girl. Okay? There was a guy who went and actually sought after his bride. The prospective bridegroom would travel from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. There he would negotiate with the father of the young woman to determine the price that he must pay to purchase his bride. 
there was a price to pay, you see. There's a price to pay before and after as well, but there was a price to pay. <laughs> now, just to, just to clarify something, and just to start the ball rolling over here, understand that Jesus left his father's home to come to seek for his bride where we live. And he paid the price. Scripture says that we are bought with a price. The price that he paid was his own life was the blood that he shed on the cross. So he was willing to pay the ultimate price to win his bride. Once the bridegroom paid the purchase price to the father, the marriage covenant was thereby established and the young man and woman were already regarded as husband and wife. Already. From that moment on, the bride was declared to be consecrated and sanctified set apart exclusively for the bridegroom. That sound familiar to you at all? As a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride would drink, drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction had been pronounced. After the marriage covenant had been established, the groom would leave the home of the bride and return to the, his father's home. There, he would remain separate from his bride for a period of at least 12 months. You like that? So you, you, you become engaged and you don't get to talk to each other and see each other for a period of 12 months. I'm not sure how that would work in our culture, but that's the way it was. This period of separation afforded the bride time to gather her bridal goods together. So she'd be building up her, her bridal uh, goods and to prepare for married life. The groom occupied himself with the preparation of the living accommodations connected to his father's house. So he'd be building a house that they would live in on his father's property and normally connected to the father's home in which he would bring his bride. You see, Jesus has gone back to the Father, hasn't he? And he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. At the end of the period of separation, the groom would come to take his bride to live with him. The taking of the bride usually took place at night. The groom, best man, and the other male escorts would leave the groom's father's house and conduct a torch-light procession to the home of the bride. Although the bride was expecting her groom to come for her, she did not know the exact time of his coming. You see. As a result, the groom's arrival would be preceded with a shout. They would shout and say, He's on his way! And they would get some time to get themselves ready. For him to come. This shout would forewarn the bride. Actually, how does Jesus come? With the shout and the trumpet of God. Interesting. Maybe the shout of the archangel. Maybe he's the best man. I don't know. This shout would forewarn the bride to be prepared for the coming of the groom. After the groom received his bride together with her female attendants, you see there was bridesmaids with the uh, bride. The enlarged wedding party would return and would walk from the bride's home to the groom's father's house. Upon arrival there, the wedding uh, party would find that the wedding guests had already assembled themselves. They were already there waiting. Shortly after, the bride and the groom would be escorted by the other members of the wedding party to the bridal chamber. Prior to entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled so that no one could see her face. While the groomsmen and bridesmaids waited outside, the bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber alone. There, in the privacy of that place, they would enter into physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage that had already been covenanted later. They came together. Now, how would you like that, though? 
today with the best man the, the, and all the bridesmaids waiting outside. Wouldn't work too easily these days. But after the marriage was consummated, okay, so they consummated the marriage, the groom would announce the consummation to the other members of the wedding party out waiting outside the chamber. These people would pass on the news of the marital union to all the wedding guests. Upon receiving this good news, the wedding guests would feast and make merry for the next seven days. During the seven days of the wedding festivities, which were sometimes called the seven days of Hapa, the bride remained hidden in the wedding, in the bridal chamber. At the conclusion of these seven days, the groom would bring out his bride out of the bridal chamber, now with her veil removed so that all could see who the bride was. At some wedding. That'd be difficult in our culture today to have a wedding like that. But that's the typical wedding that was performed in Jesus' day. Now, you might find some, of that, some aspects of that wedding a little bit strange and a little bit difficult. But when Jesus was speaking about weddings, he would refer to different aspects of this wedding that they knew and use it as an illustration so that people understood what he was talking about. So when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the upper room before the cru his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension back into heaven, back to his father's home, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He was telling his disciples that they would be his bride. He had come to marry them and everyone who, had put, who puts their faith in him in a personal way. And he was going away and then he would come back with the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God, announcing that he was coming to receive his bride back to himself. It also helps us understand something else though that not everyone is part of the Bride of Christ, you see. Because there are guests in this, in this wedding hmm, who were already there, who aren't part of the Bride. And there are also the best man and the bridesmaids and groomsmen that are not part of the Bride. They are different people. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Most of you are aware of John the Baptist, okay? Most of us are aware of who John the Baptist was. And Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet out of all the Old Testament prophets. But look what he says. When, when, when people go to John the Baptist and ask him a question about who he is, look at John the Baptist's answer. John, John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, my joy therefore, is fulfilled. John was saying that he was a friend of the bridegroom. He wasn't the bride. He was saying that the, the bridegroom, which is Jesus, he's the one who has the bride. What I'm here to do is rejoice in the fact that, that his voice has been heard now and he's coming. He came before him to announce that he was coming the first time. So John is not part of the bride. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 11, Verse 11. Look at Jesus' description of John the Baptist here. He says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, 
there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what does that mean? If John the Baptist was the greatest man that was ever born of a woman, according to Jesus, but he says that he that is least is greater than him. What does that mean? Except that there is a distinction in identity. There is a distinction in position. Where John was part of the groomsman, best man, bridal party, guests, the bride holds a very different position in God's eyes. The bride is very, very different to the, the, grooms, to the groomsman, to the bridesmaid, to the guests of the actual party. And Jesus says that the least in that, in that group is greater than John the Baptist simply by position. Now, you, most of you know that the, the church is considered the bride of Christ. So if you've put your faith in Christ today, you are part of his bride. It's difficult, though, to imagine in your mind how we are greater than John the Baptist, though, isn't it? But it's not because of what we've done that makes us greater. Because of what Jesus did for us that makes us, that makes us greater. There is nothing great in and of ourselves. Jesus took that which was defiled and ruined and sinful and rejected and turned us into something completely different and beautiful because of the price that he paid for us. It's telling that in this parable of the end of the age, and remember, this is a continuation of the Olivet Discourse. This is, this is part of Jesus' answer that he gave to the disciples when they said, what's it going to be like in the end, at the end of the world when you come back? And this is part of the, the answer that Jesus gave, and he gives this answer about these ten virgins. Now, just to make it clear... These virgins are not, they're not brides. Some people get a bit mixed up that these, these particular women are brides going to, to marry a groom. Well, no, because in Jesus' days, ten women do not go and marry one man. It was one and one. These were bridesmaids. These were the ones who accompanied the bride on the way to this great feast, to this great uh, occasion. So what is this thing telling us? Let's look at some of the elements of this, uh, of this thing. If you want to go back to that passage in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Let's, let's, let's break it down very simply. There are ten virgins, okay? And in this case, we understand them to be bridesmaids. And they go out with their lamps to await the arrival of the bridegroom. Five, it says, are foolish who take no oil with them. So they've got a lamp, but they haven't got any oil. They haven't brought any oil to keep, to keep the whole thing going for the procession all the way to, the, uh, to the, father, the, the groom's father's house. Other ones have the lamp and oil. Okay, So there is, there's a difference there already. Now it says in verse 5 that the bridegroom is delayed in his coming. So there's a, there's a delay by the time he comes. But in verse 6 and 7, when the bridegroom's arrival is announced, they start to trim their lamps. They get their lamps ready to light so they can start the procession to the father's house. Now, the foolish virgin's lamps are running out of oil. Nothing much left in there. And they look around, they've got nothing left. So they look to the wise ones and they say, you've got some oil, share some of your oil with us. At which point the wise virgins refuse, saying, ha, 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 there's not enough for both of us here. We've got enough for us. We can't give you ours, otherwise ours are going to go out as well. So they instruct the foolish ones, go and buy some. Quickly, go and get some. So while the foolish ones are going out buying oil, looking for a place to actually buy oil to fill up, fill up their lamps again, the bridegroom arrives. They start to walk back. They, they, they enter into the, the, the father's house and the doors are closed. When the, foolish, when the foolish ones finally arrive, they're not allowed in. It's too late. The party started, the celebrations have commenced and they've missed their opportunity 
to actually be part of that wedding. And Jesus makes the application in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, watch. For you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So there's a need for preparedness. There's a need to be ready for this special day. And we are waiting for a special day. You see, if you're the bride, you're waiting for your groom to come to take you home with him. But like many other parables about the kingdom of heaven, there's a similar thread that runs through them. If you notice, many of the the parables about the kingdom of heaven normally contrast two people. There's always a contrast between two types of people in this thing. There There are the prepared and the unprepared, the saved and the unsaved, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the ready and the lost. There's always a, not always, but most of the time, there's a comparison between two types of people. And if we look at the parable of the ten virgins, there's a comparison between two types of people. And there's an important lesson for us to learn here. The lesson that we need to learn, the lesson that we have to to make sure that we've appreciated, is that we must make every effort to have that oil that he's talking about. We need to make sure we have the oil, that we're ready for the day that he comes for us. Like the wise virgins had. And not to be like the foolish virgins who scrambled at the last minute because they were not prepared at all. The main lesson to learn here for us, as well as for the people at the end of the age, is one of preparedness. Are you prepared for the coming of Christ? Are you prepared for him? And there are different thoughts. If you read different commentaries, you have different people's opinions about what this oil represents. What does it mean? Some people say that it's your good works. You've got to keep making sure you do good works because if you don't do enough good works, you won't have enough oil and you won't make it to heaven. I don't think that really fits. There are some that teach that it represents the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is often represented by oil in the, in the, in the Bible and throughout the Bible. So it's symbolic of having the Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible teaches that he who does not have the Spirit of God is has nothing to do with Christ. He's none of his. But the oil could also represent the grace of God by which a person is saved. The holiness of God or the holiness? Because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So it could be, the ho- could be holiness. could be the Spirit of God. could be all those things linked together. The simple fact of the matter is that the wise virgins were carrying something and had in their possession something the foolish ones didn't have. A container of oil that would see them all the way to heaven, all the way to the wedding. And it's undoubted that whatever the oil was, whatever it is that Jesus is talking about here, it equated to the difference between being saved and not being saved. The difference between entering into heaven and being locked out of heaven. So it's critical that we need to make sure that we have the oil and that every and that we encourage people to have the oil. So what is it? Let's have a look at some of the uh, some of the things that um, that it seems to represent. So note, the foolish versions did have some oil. Did you notice that? It, they did have some. The lamps were actually lit, but they went out very quickly. So they had some of this thing, but they didn't have anywhere near what they needed to have. So in verse chapter 25, verse 8, it says, And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Which means there was a flame there at one stage, but the flame extinguished. What were they thinking? Didn't they realise that they had to get enough oil to bring, to take with them, 
to make it all the way to the groom's house, why didn't they obtain the oil they needed? Why? It's not as if they had only a little bit of time. They had like a whole year to get this oil. What stopped them from actually purchasing what they needed? You see, when you buy oil, does it go off after a week? Does it go off after a month? I mean, oil lasts for a very, very long time. It's not something that you, that you have to keep on working to get because it evaporates. Oil lasts for a long time. What is it that they didn't understand that they had to buy and get this oil? The other thing we work, that we work at here in this, in this passage is that they couldn't transfer the oil one to another. The wise ones couldn't share their oil with the, with the foolish ones. And though they had some, the foolish ones had the opportunity to buy the oil from somewhere. They couldn't get it in and of themselves, but they had the opportunity beforehand to go and buy this oil, to purchase it from someone else. In fact, yeah, like I said, they probably had a good year to, to make sure they had plenty of oil with them, but they chose not to. And finally, we understand that they didn't get a second chance with this thing. There was one chance they had to get this oil and then they failed in their, their opportunity. Because the, when they arrive at the door and finally, and they're knocking and the door is closed, it says, Lord, Lord, open to us. So they appreciated the fact they called him Lord. They called him Master, the bridegroom. They said that they believed, but in the end he answered back and says, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I don't even know you. Despite their pleas, the foolish virgins were not permitted to enter the wedding. So in every way, whatever this all represented, it clearly demonstrated two types of people, the saved and the unsaved. It's a very clear distinction between those two. The saved could not save the unsaved. They couldn't do it for them. They had to do something and appreciate what their own predicament was. Now, I personally think that righteousness is actually a good figure. Righteousness. You see, each person, the Bible says, has a little bit of a measure of righteousness. We have our own righteousness. In fact, most of the people in this world actually think they've got a whole lot of righteousness. But the Bible teaches us that whatever righteousness we think we have, when we put it down before God and we say look at my righteousness it doesn't take you very far in fact the Bible teaches us that our righteousness is like filthy rags to God no one can transfer their righteousness to anyone else either I can't give you my righteousness and you can't give me your righteousness you have to have your own righteousness Righteousness can only be attributed to a person who will one day give an account of themselves to God. But this righteousness can be obtained. It can be sought. It can be bought. You know, when you hear the gospel being preached, when you go to, when you go to hear the gospel being preached or you, you read the word of God, there is a righteousness that you can obtain doesn't come from yourself it comes from from somewhere else and for those who hear the word of God accept the gospel accept the sacrifice that was made on their behalf and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior the Bible says that not only are your sins forgiven not only does God give you a new start in life but the Bible also teaches that there is an imputation of righteousness that comes into your life and God gives you that righteousness. In fact, the righteousness of Christ comes to everyone who puts their faith in Christ. And there's more than enough to get you to heaven. God, when you are saved, God declares you just before him. And not only are your sins paid for by that precious blood that was shed on Calvary, but the Bible says that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. So you had, you and I had, before we were saved, a deficit in our bank account. We had a debt we could not 
and never could pay. doesn't matter how much righteousness we tried to produce in and of ourselves, we could never make up for the sins and the debt that we had. But when Christ died on that cross and shed his blood, the Bible says that he shed that blood and that blood was the, the atonement. That blood paid for the sins that we committed. So all of a sudden, all that, all that debt that we have was paid and we've got zero in our bank account. Now we, we have no more debt anymore. But the Bible also teaches that everything that Christ has is given to us. Let me, sh- let me share with you a couple of scripture verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all that believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is a righteousness that a person can receive. It's unto everyone that puts their faith in Christ, and that righteousness comes from Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible says that when a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they are, they are said to be in Christ, in. So it's, it's a bit like when God sees us, he sees the beauty, he sees the holiness, the righteousness of his own son within us. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's why a person has to receive Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, to be saved. They can't be saved by another means, by another track, by another method, religion or anything else. If a person doesn't receive Jesus as Saviour, then their righteousness can't match up and pay the debt that they already have before God. They will never make it to heaven. They will never make it to that blessed place. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 says, But what things we were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There is a righteousness that is given to a person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law that we keep, not before we were saved and not after a person is saved. Because by keeping the law, you don't justify yourself before God in any any area of your life, at any time of your life. Because by the law comes a knowledge of sin. But righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, righteousness is a hallmark of someone that has put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. While the foolish people of this world spend their lives relying on their own meagre righteousness, which will always fail the test of God, the picture of the prepared and the unprepared is presented in Scripture over and over and over again. It's not a matter of trying to produce your own oil here. It's a matter of buying the oil and receiving that oil. Most people spend their lives in religion. I know. I come from a Catholic background. And I know that almost every relative that I have who's 
Catholic, whom I love dearly, has a righteousness of their own. They might go to church regularly. They might perform particular rituals and be involved in their church. They might pray. They might do a whole lot of things. But in the end, I know that the righteousness they have is not coming from God. It's their own righteousness. And they think that by their own efforts, that God will, one day when they arrive at heaven's door, that they'll knock on that door and they'll say, I'm here. Look at all the wonderful things that I've done. Look at the money I gave to the poor. Look at how many times I went to church. Look at I read the Bible. Look at I prayed. How many, how many Hail Marys and Our Fathers I prayed in my lifetime. You know, I gave money here. I did this. I did that. And the Bible says, for those who haven't put their faith in Christ, who haven't received Him as Lord and Saviour, who are trying to justify themselves before God, God will say, I don't even know you. I don't know you. What does it mean to prepare for God? What does it mean to prepare yourself for Jesus Christ? It simply means this, to humble yourself before God, to admit that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. You know, the biggest hurdle that people have to coming to Christianity, to coming to Jesus Christ, is their own pride. Pride will send more people to hell than anything else that I know. And it's because they can't humble themselves. They have to justify themselves before God because they have to show that they did it. The Bible teaches that you can't do it. So the biggest hurdle I know, the the biggest thing that will send the multitude of people to hell is their own pride. It's the hardest thing. And I, I think the foolish virgins were the ones who couldn't humble themselves and accept the righteousness that comes from God. They obviously didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They had a righteousness, they had their own, and they were relying on that. To humble yourself before God, submit yourself to Him, and by faith receive Jesus Christ and live for Him day by day, that's being prepared for Him. It realises your own inadequacy, and it relies upon the grace of God to save you. This is the message that Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the publican. Do you remember when Jesus gave that message about the Pharisee and the publican that went into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood before God and he said, I thank you, God, that I am not like this guy over here. I give money to the poor, I tithe, I do this, I do that, I pray, I fast. Look how wonderful I am, God. And then you have a publican standing, on the, standing far back who beats his chest and says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which of those two men went home justified? It was the publican went home justified, just before God. Because he humbled himself before God. The Pharisee relied on his own righteousness and failed. The the publican, the sinner, relied on the mercy of God and won. There is a common message in the Bible about the kingdom of God. In the parable of the dragnet, all types of fishes are caught. In God's kingdom, it says. In the kingdom of heaven, all these fish are caught. But they're not all good fishes. They're not all good fishes. Even though they're, both, they're all in the kingdom of God, they're not. They have to be separated in the end. Some are bad fish. In the parable of the sower... The good seed is sown into a field, the Bible says. But at night, the evil one comes and sows tares among the wheat. So when they start sprouting up, they look the same, but there's something wrong here. There are two types of of grass growing in this field. Where the the good man who sowed the seed sowed good seed, there's someone else who sowed other seed. And then they say, the servants say to him, Master, do you want us to get rid of the, the bad seed now? And he goes, no, 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 lest, you, lest you, uh, you rip up the good seed as well. Wait till they fully grow and then at the end of the harvest we'll separate them. What does that mean to you? Doesn't it mean that in the kingdom of God itself, this is not outside of the kingdom, this is in the kingdom of God, there are good and there are bad. In every church, there are those who are saved. There are those who are not. 
In every church, there are the foolish virgins and there are the wise virgins. In every church, there are good fish and there are bad fish. In the parable of the mustard seed, this is the kingdom of God again. A small seed grows up to be a, a huge tree. Fantastic. The kingdom of God grows very quickly. But then it says that the, that the birds nest, begin to nest in the actual branches. Is that a good thing? No, it's not. The birds are bad. When the, when the woman's making the dough, and it says that she mixes a little bit of yeast or leaven in the dough and it spreads through the whole thing, you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I'll tell you what's a bad thing. Jesus wasn't giving a good example of the kingdom of heaven. He was giving a bad example of the kingdom of heaven because hypocrisy and the yeast of the Pharisees and evil actually spreads within the kingdom of God. There shall be in the kingdom of God people who profess that they are believers. How many Christians are there in the world today? Do you know? Do you know that there are at least 2 billion people who call themselves Christian? 2 billion now let me ask you a question. How many of those are real Christians? They profess that they know Christ. They profess that they believe. They go to church. They do good works. They do a whole lot of things that sometimes we don't even do. So let me ask you a question. Do they know Christ? At the end of the age, in the kingdom of God, when he separates the good from the bad, There'll be many who say, hang on, what's going on here? Wasn't I doing all this good stuff for you, God? Surely you looked at all, all my good stuff and you, and you appreciate what I've done for you. But in the end, God will simply say, I don't know you. I never knew you. They have deluded themselves into trusting their own righteousness and have a form of religion that they use to justify themselves before God. In the end, their oil will be deficient. They will have trimmed their lamps, they would have started the walk, and in the end, it peters out. Just as a side note, you know the, the parable of the wheat, that's the parable of the sower that's sown. And the Bible says that he sowed some, it fell on a path, some falls on stony ground, some falls among the thorns and the thistles and there's only some that falls in the, in the actual um, good soil. How many of those people are saved, do you reckon? Which ones are those are saved? The ones that fall on the stony ground quickly rise up? Actually, no, the ones that fall on the, on the path, the, the Bible says the birds come and take, that, take those things away before they get a chance to spread it all. Are they saved? No, let's say no. Now, the ones that fall on the stony ground quickly rise up, but as soon as there's a bit of heat, they wither away because the root can't actually penetrate the ground. Are they safe? I don't think so. There's ones that, that, are, that are thrown into the actual thistles and the thorns and they start to rise up, but the cares and the, and the desires of this world choke them and they don't produce any fruit. Do you think they're safe? I don't think they're safe. I think there's only one out of that whole group that are saved. And it's the one that finally bears fruit. That's a lot of different seeds that look as if they're Christians. The plant starts to grow, but then it fizzles out. It doesn't last. But the Bible teaches us that a genuine believer will endure to the end. That's a guarantee that God gives us. And people say, how can he be a Christian? He's a, he's a Christian and he's walked away. And they say, look, he's lost his salvation. And I say, really? Well, that's not what I understand in Scripture. What I understand in Scripture is that what God has commenced in you, he will see to the end. What I understand in Scripture is that when God gives a person the Holy Spirit, that person is sealed unto the day of redemption. What I read in the scripture is that God says that when a person begins that walk of faith, that he will endure to the end. And if you don't endure to the end, you never, you never really started to begin with. You're like those foolish virgins that had their, they had their little lamp, they were, they were starting the walk, and they realised, oh, oh, we're running out of oil here. Now what do we do? 
there is a contrast in Scripture between the saved and the unsaved. Let me read this passage in Matthew for you. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. That's not salvation. No fruit into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me, two billion, maybe more, will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Not I knew you, and then... I lost track of you or you left. I never knew you. Not from the beginning, not from day one. I knew you. Because they were relying on their own oil. They were relying on what they had. They never submitted themselves to the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. The greatest challenge we face as people is to examine ourselves with honesty. Don't you think so? Because I, I struggle with that. To properly examine myself and say, Frank, what are you, what's your walk like? How are you with the Lord? Because the, the Bible says the heart is deceptive above all things. My heart is still trying to pull me away from the Lord. My flesh is still battling against me. I haven't won that victory yet. And I'm sure you guys haven't either. But the worst thing I can imagine is spending your whole life coming to church, reading your Bible, praying with other people, giving money to the poor, helping out with missionaries, helping a church and doing, doing this wonderful work that we have here. And then in the end, hearing Jesus say, I don't know you. What a tragedy that would be. What an absolute tragedy to spend the rest of eternity lamenting yourself that you played religion rather than submitting yourself to the mercy and the grace of God to receive grace by faith. What a tragedy that would be. You don't think that the, that the, um, the foolish virgins were broken hearted when they get to that door and they knock and they say, Lord, let us in. They wanted to be part of that thing. They knew who he was. They recognised him. They were there with their lamps and it was too late. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 13. And we'll close up with some just some thoughts. This is a difficult two verses that I'm going to read. They're difficult, and we don't read them very often. I don't hear them very often preached. But it says in 2 Corinthians, did I say 2 Corinthians? Chapter 13, verse 5, it says, verse 5. It says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Test yourselves. Prove it. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. Except ye be reprobates. And Paul says, but I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. So Paul says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And he says, don't you know how Jesus Christ is in you except your reprobates. A reprobate. What's a reprobate? Actually, reprobate is actually a, 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 almost a Christian term. In the, 19, in the 1500s, it was used as, as a term for someone who was rejected. Outcast. Not up to scratch. Test yourselves whether you indeed are walking with Christ. You know the worst thing? When people make New Year's resolutions and, they, and inevitably 
Christians, non-Christians, everyone make resolutions to be fitter, healthier, wiser, you know, to, to save more money, to do more things, to serve here, to serve there. What about, the, what about a, a New Year's resolution that says, from this day forth, I am going to examine myself with all honesty. And if I find a deficiency in me, if I find there's a doubt, that I will humble myself before God and throw myself at His mercy and I will ask for forgiveness and I will, and I will commit myself to Him. Because you know something? This, is, this parable is talking about bridesmaids. You're the bride. Tell me who's meant to be more faithful. What's, greater, what's the greater expectation? On the bridesmaids or the bride? The Apostle Paul, when he, when he shared the gospel with the Corinthians, look at what he says to them. He says, for I am jealous over you. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband. that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. The devil will do everything he can. If you've been betrothed to Christ, understand God already sees you as married. You're already set apart solely for him. The question is, really, have you really been set apart? Are you really part of his bride? That's the question number one. And if you are, the next question is, am I behaving as part of his bride? Because there's a greater expectation in the bride than there is in the bridesmaids, I'll tell you this much. James expressed the same concern that Paul had. When he rebuked the Christians and says, "Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James knew what was going on. James realised that a person who says, I'm a Christian, has said, I'm betrothed to Jesus. My, I am his and he is mine. And I look forward to the day when he's going to come and take me home. But too many Christians aren't living any life anywhere near that. There is no fruit in their life. And James says in this context, he says, be careful, you're committing spiritual adultery while Jesus is preparing a place for you. And that adultery occurs when a believer becomes more devoted to this godless world, becomes more devoted chasing after the things of this world than they are for their beloved, for their loved one. The one who gave everything, who paid the biggest price you can imagine. He shed his blood and died so that he could buy us. If you're a believer this morning, please start this year by honestly evaluating your life. You know, we have wonderful fellowship. I love this church. I love each and every one of you. We have such a, a blessed time together when we're together. We have a great fellowship. We have a sweet spirit. We have, we have a love and we have graciousness. We have all these wonderful things in this church. But I would hate to think that there are any here, any, that are so wrapped up and so happy in this fellowship that we have that they miss the mark. That they've forgotten the real reason we're here is not each other. It's for him. That everything we do should be for him, our beloved are you longing to see him? Are you longing? Or are we so wrapped up in this world that we just, we're not even waiting for him? Do you love him as much now as when you took him to be your saviour? Do you love him? Or has that love gone cold? Is he truly the centre of your existence this morning? If he isn't, make him the centre of your existence. Make him, tell him, first of all, tell him that you love him. Tell him that you want him to be the most precious thing in your life and do it. Is your every attitude, action and lifestyle motivated and controlled by your devotion to your Lord and your Master? 
Or is your, is your life more controlled by the things of this world and the cares and concerns that, that the devil would seem to heap upon us to distract us from our real calling? If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, you are part of his bride. Live like it. If you're not sure this morning, if you look at your life and you say, my life's really not showing the type of fruits, maybe it's never shown the type of fruits that tell you that you are a genuine believer of Christ, then make it so. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to someone else. And let's pray together. Let's commit that life and start that life again and see what great things God can do. God bless you all. Thank you.